Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Steve Savitsky. Welcome back to Unrestricted. And today we have a really, really incredible guest, someone who I've admired for so many years, the fourth president, I believe I'm correct, of Yeshiva University, Richard Joel. Welcome, Richard. How are you? Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm fine. So was I right about the fourth president, correct? Yes, 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 yes. Dr. Revel, Dr. Belkin, Dr. Lamb. And then you and then Ari Berman. When you think about it, after all those years, it's really quite something to only have now only five presidents in the history of Yeshiva University. So that's quite something, I think. Well, very much so, considering that the average tenure of a university president today is about five and a half years. Really? No kidding. And getting shorter because jobs getting more challenging, not less. Yes, I understand that. Believe me, I'm in the healthcare business. I think the average CEO of a hospital is about two years this year. Yeah, so, yeah. So it's a sure, tough job. True. So anyway, so you were president, I know, for about 15 years and then retired or actually went into another chapter of your life, which we like to hear about. So I'm sure people are just curious. First of all, how are you doing? What's going on with your life? How are your kids going? And and, uh, and you're still living in Riverdale, I presume, right? Yes, we're living in Riverdale. Thank God we are fine. Life is a great blessing, and it always has been. I think that the, this next stage, which I call not retirement, but rewirement. Oh, good. Uh, I like that. Has really been lovely. It's It's been five years since I left the presidency. So uh, uh, the challenge always when you leave something that's... Uh, uh, that's both fulfilling and exhausting is to make sure that you're not just going from something, but that you're going to something. So that was a little bit of the adjustment. But right now, first of all, Esther is wonderful. Uh, our children are fine, although a little bit spread out. We have one in Jerusalem, one in Los Angeles, one in Bergenfield, and three in Cleveland, the Jerusalem of America. Three in Cleveland. Wow. Three in Cleveland. Now, that's an amazing community today, and I'm really excited about it because during my tenure as president of the OU, I was pushing you know, the building of, I, I first started out calling them small Jewish communities. They didn't like that, so I called them emerging Jewish communities. So Cleveland is definitely more than emerging. It is really a prolific Jewish community. Fantastic place. Well, I think it, it certainly is, uh, so much so that, uh, that Esther and I, a uh, couple of years ago, with the two of our children there and now three there, we decided to buy a Florida house in Cleveland. Um, so we have a little cottage. You want to go there for the winter because it's so beautiful in the winter. Uh, yes. You're clearly the first person who's joked with me about that. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, what nobody realizes is that I think we have Florida beat three out of four seasons. This is true. So, and the fourth one, uh, they're great in Cleveland. Before the snow falls, most of it is cleared. It's very similar to New York weather. And it's a great community. And yes, your leadership at the OU really started to shine a light uh, on the fact that not New York is a wonderful place to live as uh, as Jews. And uh, in fact, uh, with my former chairman, Maury Weiss, uh, I was involved in starting a wonderful initiative that Cleveland is doing now 
uh, which I think is called Come Home to Cleveland. It's an emerged community. Thank God. It's really wonderful. We're going there for a few weeks uh, during the break. And uh, so we have three kids there and uh, and a son in Los Angeles. And they're all doing well. Can I hurry? They, uh, they keep feeding us grandchildren. So life is wonderful. I, I'm enjoying, I'm teaching at Yeshiva University and I'm enjoying that very much. I'm also supposed to be writing a book on my philosophy. So I did explain to them that if there'd be a book on my philosophy, it would probably be a comic book. But they would like something from me as uh, just as a uh, as a marker of my presidency. So I said I'd be working on that, and I started that five years ago. And I'm now about to tell them that it'll have to be published posthumously. I'll get there, but I've been busy. Here's what I wanted to ask you. One of the questions I thought was really interesting to think about, because I I know it's been also true in my life and other people I've spoken to, is the adjustment from going from being president, being in the spotlight, being in the news, being on call 24, it's really seven almost, to a more private life. I mean, what kind of adjustment was that? Well, it's an adjustment. That's why I jokingly said it's not retiring, it's rewiring, because you have to approach life differently. There is no question that the, uh, uh, the presidency of YU and even the presidency of Hillel before that was a very high intensity life, one that, that we loved, but required a great deal of juggling and and was a lot of pressure. The, the word I used about the yeshiva presidency, uh, uh, along with other things, is is it's relentless. It's relentless. It's, it's, it's a more important word than 24-7. But I'll also tell you that Thomas Jefferson called the presidency a splendid misery. Okay. And it, it's a very good description because it was splendid and wonderful but it also had a lot of pain involved in it. We, or I originally said I never wanted to keep a leadership job for more than 10 years when I went to Hillel. And I was at Hillel for 15 and at Yeshiva for 15, just because circumstances were like that. But I never thought I was going to keep any job. I never wanted to keep any job uh, forever. People would come up to us and ask the question you did. They'd turn to Esther and me and say, you know, do you miss it? Do you want to do it again? So... Uh, the answer that I gave then, and it's still true, is, you know, we would do it again in a minute. We just don't want to do it anymore. So it was great. It was nonstop. We worked very hard to make sure that the family was still a family and that our home, although we were always entertaining, but the home and Shabbos, even with company, uh, was always for the family and about the family. But it was that way at, at Hillel, too. Uh, when we stopped, sure, everything stops. They did a Purim Spiel video about me that had me... Uh, uh, that had me walking out of my house the day after I left the presidency, uh, getting into my car in the back seat and waiting for the driver to start, but there was no driver. <laughs> so okay. it's it's certainly a change. But I would tell you, there's also a, a freedom. It's going to next. I don't miss the pressure of the job. I really did feel the day I left that a an iron yoke kind of came off my back. That doesn't mean that it wasn't a privilege and it doesn't mean I didn't love it, but it also was a job where every possible issue that could come came and every crisis that you could face came and all the jobs. I don't think it was me. I think it's the world. Uh, also, I have to tell you that with the advent of the revolution in communications and social media, uh, with all the positives that have come from that, there are enormous challenges because of the lack of, of having any space, having any privacy, uh, having a sense of institutionalized rechilus, which, which makes it hard. 
there's no question about that, that it's a very, very, you know, you say relentless. It is because I know that I personally always felt like I was always waiting for the next crisis to come. <laughs> you know, like you'd get up in the morning and then you'd say, OK, <laughs> are we still are we still in business? The challenge was to always be on, but always be real. And and that was really a challenge. And I thought as soon as I would leave, I would have the anonymity that I deserved. It's, of course, not true because uh, there are even people older than me and they uh, and they remember. Esther says, and I think she's right, that it's very important that that I had decided not to give up my tenure and to continue as a university professor because the uh, teaching, although allegedly part time, uh, really keeps me vibrant and alive and struggling as to how we spend our time. It's not that we, we would love to spend time. We do spend time with all the children. We even do some vacationing. But there's a, there's a certain rigor to life that I, that I enjoy very much, as long as the students enjoy me. I mean. So that's what I was going to ask you next. So I know you're teaching in YU. So what do you teach and, and what's it like? Look, it's interesting. I, I always had a sense. Remember, I, was a, the, I taught law at Cardozo while I was associate dean there, so the classroom was not strange to me. And for the last uh, five years of my presidency, I also taught one course a year because I thought it was necessary. Uh, what's it like? Look, the benefits are when I, when I stepped down from the presidency, Steve, my friend uh, John Sexton, who was president of NYU and retired before me, said, I'm going to give you good advice. Someone comes over to you and says anything like, What's going on at YU? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Here's the answer you give them. Hashtag not my problem. And the truth is you have to have that approach. Not that you don't care, but that it's not your place to occupy the microphone of Yeshiva University. So that's somewhat liberating. I work hard in my classes, um, even when we speak of issues of the day of Inyane Diyama, uh, that I, I never get into the issue of YU politics. Uh, I rarely get into the issue of national politics because I don't think that's what the uh, the classroom is for. What's it like? I get a paycheck. I don't worry about what's going on. I come to my classes. When I have an office, I spend some time in the office, and I have these wonderful students. I, I've been teaching basically two classes, and I'm about to add a third. The two classes, one is a, a course in Sims for undergraduates uh, that's called Leadership in the Not-for-Profit World. The other is a course in Wurzweiler called The Ethical and Philosophical Foundations of Social Work, uh, which I also enjoy. And now I'm putting the finishing touches, I hope, on a class for the spring in Yeshiva College called Politics, Leadership, and Values. So look, the Yeshiva students are better and better. They've always been wonderful. They're strong. They're a little bit in your face. I think they appreciate the personal interaction. And I gain a lot from it. We still invite students over for Shabbos. So when that happens, that's always fun, too. That's wonderful. So, you know, you probably more than anyone I know has just not just the experience at YU, but all those years at Hillel on the college campus. And, you know, today the college campus seems to be a hotbed for anti-Semitism. And I always wonder, well, why is that? Second of all, is there anything you think we could possibly do about it? Because, I mean, I've gone to 100 meetings, uh, and I don't have any solution. But I'm really curious as to what you think. Why, first of all, why? And two, what can we do to prepare our kids? And also, what can we do to change the culture or the environment? Or maybe not? 
It's a great question. I will tell you it was the same question I was asked uh, 30 years ago uh, when I was in the midst of my tenure at Hillel. The campuses are on fire, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's more true now than it was then. And I think the issue was a broader issue of the culture of a university. And the culture of a university, uh, by the way, it's one of the reasons why it's challenging for Torah observant students to attend secular university. There are more challenges to it because the culture of the university is individualistic. Our culture is collective. The culture of the university is anti orthodoxy, not anti Jewish orthodoxy, anti orthodoxy, right? Intimate relations are casual, and people really have to, to some degree, uh, segregate themselves in order to uh, focus on their life values as Jews, uh, which is, of course, the greatest uh, reason for both Hillel and JLIC. But I would tell you that the anti-Semitism has gone to a different place uh, for this reason. There were always activists who were advocating for Palestine and calling Israel an apartheid state I used to go from campus to campus where there were issues. We worked closely uh, with APAC and with the local federations to not counter what they're doing, but clearly strongly make the case for Israel and be positive about it, because that's the only thing that works. Uh, what's happened now, though, is over the last 10 or 12 years, the Palestine issue, which was knocking at the door of the liberal coalition saying, let us in, let us in, has gone mainstream. So it's now part of the college student liberal, and I'm using it with a, with a small l, liberal coalition of political correctness. That makes it extraordinarily difficult to combat. And the question is, who are we combating it from? I think our first obligation is to combat it in a way that our own children don't feel challenged. And then I think we have an obligation to make the case for the campus community but that's not by fighting the haters. That doesn't do anything. And I tell you, a whole lot of Jews don't want to come to campus if what they get to do uh, by being part of Hillel is to fight anti-Semitism. They want to be positive. In terms of a curative for it, I mean, I, I will tell you that I think that the only thing in terms of pro-Israel activism that I think has been truly effective is birthright, which is the, the greatest Jewish invention since the bar mitzvah. The answer to anti-Semitism is to allow people who have any kind of open minds to confront what Israel is as the as the eternal homeland of the Jewish people and as the Jews' Disneyland. The students who go to Birthright aren't going for an Israel experience, they're going for an identity experience. And that really works. And I'm talking too long, so I'll be quiet. No, no, no. I, I look, it's really important because this is an issue. It's one of the main issues. So do you think that it's possible today for a modern Orthodox, once again, we, we talk about modern Orthodox, maybe you'll give me your definition. I, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't quite <laughs> understand it. But, but I'm saying whatever modern Orthodox is, is, is it possible today, first of all, for our kids to go to the university campus and stay committed to their religion? Two things. Um, first of all, I'll be happy to get to modern Orthodoxy after this. But you're also asking the former president of Yeshiva University where our children should go to school. So I do think all things being equal, there is no experience like the Yeshiva University experience. And it's not because we're hunkered down. It's because we are in an environment that we define in terms of positive values. Of course it's possible, however, if yeshiva is not for your child. 
Of course it's possible if you're a careful consumer to find a campus that is open to observance. I would tell you that all the campuses that there are Hillel's have a, a major chore because let's remind ourselves that 90% of the Jews are not Orthodox and a huge number of them are on 100 campuses. And one of the definitions of modern Orthodox is to realize that we're part of Klal Yisrael and we have to keep working on keeping Jews Jewish. In terms of an Orthodox kid going to campus, I think there are a number of campuses where there is a community, where there is a neighboring community, where there's the availability of kosher food and even minyanim. I think it's also critical to uh, about the... 25 years ago, a fellow named Menachem Schrader enlisted my help in starting something that he called um, JLIC. And JLIC was invented as a partnership between Hillel and Menachem Schrader. And Menachem was going to be responsible for the fundraising and the selection of an Orthodox rabbinic couple uh, who would go on campus, work through the Hillel. And their job at that time construed, was to provide learning opportunities and closeness for Orthodox kids on campus. Thanks to the vision of you and others, it was embraced by the OU and became a formal program and then has, has multiplied to numerous campuses. It's still a real challenge, I believe, for the OU to keep it funded because there's no, uh, you know, there's a floating coalition of people who want it. But I would tell you that it's had a very serious impact for the Orthodox kids on campus. I always felt that even with JLIC, attending a secular school is bidiyeved and lachatchila should be going to Yeshiva University. But there are very active, very positive campuses. I think it's also a responsibility for the students. I mean, uh, you know, they can have a wonderful Friday night Shabbos experience. When they wake up in the morning, it's Saturday and it's not necessarily Shabbos. And I think each student has to make their own contract with themselves as to what's non-negotiable. Who are their best friends? What's their commitment to learning? What kind of books are they reading? How much are they connected with home? Uh, so the answer is yes, with an explanation. Okay, so I'm gonna, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if I was just sitting and talking to you, as we are, and I said, my kid wants to go to a college campus, a secular college campus, I, I'm sure there are, there are many. Could you give me three or four that you would recommend that you think would be probably better? Well, I'm, I'm a little bit dated at this, but I'll be happy to do that. I think Maryland has done, under Ari Israel's leadership, who's a YU Mosmuch and whose children have come to YU, I think he's done a really extraordinary job. We started rebuilding that during my tenure, and now he's gone through his new building and they're building another one. But it's not because of that. It's because it is a beacon of, of Yiddishkeit. I'm not sure how many kids grow, but I certainly know that it's a safe place. By the way, they all live with the tensions, the political storms that are going on around them. I think uh, Columbia is a good place. I think Princeton is a very small community, but I think it's a good community. I think Penn is a very good community. Um, I think Rutgers has something going for it. I'll, I think UCLA as well. There are many more. 
No, I mean, I think it's important. People are going to listen, and it's important for them to know, because I, I believe that this decision is is extremely important. You know, you spent your kids 16 years in the yeshiva environment, and now you want to send them someplace. Okay, they want to go to a secular university, but whenever I spoke, I always said it was the Bidiyevet. I never said it was a Luchatrila, and I always pushed YU, because to me, in my mind, the campus, the environment, the Rabbeim, everything else about YU, the Torah, everything about YU is fantastic. And Baruch Hashem, most of my most of my kids and my grandkids have gone there, and I certainly have encouraged them to do this. So I know when you were there, one of the big projects at YU was CJF, and now looking at it realistically, they've kind of downplayed it a little bit. So I mean, I'm not saying I don't say you have to agree with it, but what do you think is going to happen now that they've downplayed it? Who's going to lose out? I mean, the Jewish community, obviously, you thought it was very important. So now, if it's not there, what happens next? Well, first of all, I'd rather not talk about what's there or not there, except I will say that many of the programs that was incorporated under an enterprise called the Center for the Jewish Future continues to exist. Rabbinic placement exists. The Archaikala exists. The uh, uh, YU Torah exists. Many of those programs, the Blanche Schreiber Torah Tours, exist. Philosophically, my view of yeshiva was that Yeshiva University had to be a great educational Torah institution and a movement for orthodoxy. And therefore, I felt the curricular and the beyond curricular was part of our mandate. I thought that we had to advocate for Jewish education and for teachers being treated uh, well. I thought we had to work hard to train teachers. The faculty of Azraeli went from two when I became president to I think 13 or 14 now. I think the rabbinic placement under Rabbi Ronnie Schwartzberg's leadership has been extraordinary and continues. I think J.J. Schechter giving Yarche Kala for rabbis and uh, having a women's Yarche Kala for Rebetzins under uh, Meira Davis's leadership, all that continues. Also, we made it a center for leadership training for students, and we had uh, service learning programs and the like, and some of them are happening too. I think what's just happened is that, look, every administration is entitled to put its flavor on it. And I, I don't think the current one believes that you need the central focus uh, that we provided for CJF. I would also tell you before CJF, there was something called the Max Stern Division of Communal Service. And before that, there was the Community Service Division. So it wasn't a new invention. It was just a refined invention. Uh, I'll also say something else, Steve. From the beginning, when I started these things, including the Champions Gate conferences and so much, I reached out to the OU, which was going through its development and redevelopment into something that's really quite spectacular in those small measure due to you, and said, let's partner in this 100%. Let's be co-sponsors. The time wasn't ripe for that at that time. And I think part of the reason that Yeshiva can uh, perhaps let up on its uh, emphasis on that is that the OU has assumed some serious responsibility for many of those areas. And frankly, I hope they continue. I think there should be a champion's gate for the Jewish community that you guys run. So look, everything in its time, only God and hopefully Claudius Israel are forever. And 
the good that you do continues, both in the people who benefited from it and the change in the culture that continues. Right. I agree. Let's ask one or two more questions about YU. Uh, the Maccabees, the, uh, no, I don't talk about the singers. I'm talking about the basketball players. Right. So that, I mean, last year was a crazy year with this historical <laughs> run. And all of a sudden they were making them into, uh, you know, the NBA. Demigods. Yeah, right. And uh, what, what did you think about that when this, this was going on? I thought it was great as long as you keep your eye on the ball. And I don't mean the basketball, I mean the uh, the purpose. Look, we worked very hard to really make the, the physical education program and the sports program shine at Yeshiva. I thought it was a very important part of a college experience and done under our aegis. It could be a, a Kiddush Hashem experience as well. I think the basketball team has been, with Elliot Steinmetz, has done phenomenal things, has built on a long tradition, but really, it's it's wonderful to go to a YU basketball game and see all the all the bleachers filled, and I think it's been a great source of pride. And I think it's also done wonderful things for the scholar athletes who are working. I don't think there are a lot of other basketball teams that gather for practice at six o'clock in the morning so they can daven with a, with their own minion first. And I think that's an important thing. It's a Kiddush Hashem. Uh, it's very very good, and maybe a little controversial, but. You know, we had the star, Ryan Terrell. Rav Schechter just wrote an article about him. Now he's a professional player playing in not the NBA, but the, the league below it. And hopefully he wants to be an NBA player. Where's his yarmulke? Has said that he's not going to drive on Shabbos or walk to the, to the basketball court and so on. And um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of thoughts about it. I'm sure you must have, you must have some opinion about it. I have some. Look, first of all, you know, we don't create robots. We educate wonderful young people. We give them their values. And part of the modern orthodoxy we'll talk about is that you have to figure out within the halacha of how to traverse the world. So I admire the fact that Yiddishkeit is very important to him. It is his life. He's making his statements and he's trying to balance his basketball and his Jewish uh, passions, I think that's laudable. Fortunately, I'm not and never have been a halachic authority. And, you know, the issue of saying I'm I'm not going to travel and I'm not going to uh, be machalo Shabbos is really laudable. How you do that while still playing games on Shabbos, I think we also have to go to most of our communities and ask the parents if they really should be allowing their children to play basketball on Shabbos in their front yards. Uh, and these are things for us to debate and to do. I think what's moving him is something laudable. Okay, I hear. It. I think it's a good answer. So let's talk for a moment just about modern orthodoxy. So I just heard a speech a few weeks ago from Erica Brown, and she was talking about how it seems to her that the modern orthodoxy seems to be going either to the left or to the right, and that it's hard for us to keep whatever modern orthodoxy means. Uh, so first of all, what's your definition, if you have one? Because I think it's an important movement. I think it's a very important movement. But what do we have to do to keep it strong? I think modern orthodoxy, by definition, has always faced challenges of being pulled to the left and pushed to the right. That's why, frankly, I think it would never be a mass movement where there's a there's a simple formula, follow this and do this and follow these people and behave exactly this way. Therefore, in a movement that is filled with nuance and complexity 
and color. And in many ways, it's the fault of the Rav Zatzal. It is hard. Walking this path is, is like walking on a very narrow bridge. And you can get pushed to the left and pushed to the right, both ways that in some ways are much easier for an individual to do. But we do believe that the way that we put our Yiddishkeit forward is right, is important, not just for us, but for Claudius Royal and humankind. And therefore you do it. It's not going to be a mass movement. It requires work. It requires challenge. Look, it's a covenantal movement between you and God, right? Saying that, that we're supposed to live a life of Torah and that through the lens of Torah, we're supposed to embrace all of God's wisdoms. And our challenge is to partner with God to advance and improve the world. That's all really central. Uh, when I was president, I used to talk about it. And of course, I still believe in the theme of Torah Umada. Of course, you can fight about it all the time, what it means. But uh, Rabbi Tendler, may he rest in peace, uh, once heard me say that I believe that this is really Torah Umada Lechatchila, that it's not a default position. Oh, we got to live in the world. We might as well do it. But that it's a priori, that this is the gift we're given to live a full life and to do it. So he would come to me and say, keep saying Torah Umada Lechatchila. Uh, and I do. And of course, it's a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge that I think is played out daily at Yeshiva University. I think uh, uh, Rav Schechter once told me the special thing about Yeshiva University is there's no one Rosh Yeshiva. We have 27 Rosh Yeshiva, and they're all within the same tent, and they all might decide different issues differently, but it's all within the tent of Torah and the tent of Halacha. And the problem with a big tent is often it's pushed out and you worry that you push it too far that it'll just collapse on itself. And that's part of the tension that we engage in. Uh, but I would tell you, I see modern orthodoxy alive and well. Uh, remember when you and I grew up, almost no one talked about it. There certainly weren't all these modern orthodox communities. And of course, what happens is when you're in these communities, at times you think you're the only one there and you drift into a greater kind of absolutism. There's also the danger in contemporary life of what I still call Torah Upranasa. Sometimes we pervert the sense of we're supposed to live a Torah life and embrace the wisdoms of the world and live in the world to advance it as being, have a good job, make lots of money so you can live in your community. And I think Yiddishkeit is more than that. I think the arts and sciences and philosophy and music and culture are, are an important part of who we are. One other question before I get to what I call my lightning round. <laughs> On a personal level, I know after you finished, why you, you have a re rebirth of your knees. So you had knee replacements. Everyone wants to know, how are you doing? How's it going? And I guess, uh, you know, what are you able to do now that you weren't before? Well, I crawl around very well. Uh, no, the truth is I had both knees replaced within six months of each other. And I would tell you that, at least to me, I don't recall it being uh, such a horrendous process. Esther says, fortunately, there were drugs, so I don't remember that it was a horrendous process. But I will tell you that I'm blessed. I mean, I can do – the only thing that's hard for me is it hurts when I – when I get down on the floor on my knees and put pressure on my knees, that hurts. So I complained to the doctor about it. And he said, Richard, 
that's not what they're made for. So you can still do it. Look, it's it's I'm 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 72 years old. So I'm probably not going skiing. But I didn't go skiing before I was 72 years old. I was just thinking yesterday that probably I'm not going to get on ice skates, but pretty much everything else life is is wonderful and pretty pain-free. That's wonderful to hear. Okay, so let's just end this off with what I call the lightning round. Just, I'm not telling you you have to give me spontaneous answers, but, you know, just whatever more or less is coming to your mind. Okay, so here we go. Firstly, who's the greatest person you ever met? You know, my, my answer would be my wife, not because it's politically correct, but I think she and my parents had the largest influence on me and the way she lives her life is a daily inspiration to me. I've been really blessed. I mean, I've met uh, from the secular side, I've I've met four or five presidents of the United States. Uh, I have uh, pictures with all the presidents of Israel. I have some pictures in my rogues gallery of politicians, prime ministers, and presidents who I don't show anymore because they've gone to jail. But, and, and on the Jewish, listen, I, I, I was not a student of the Rav, except, uh, except psychically. I had the opportunity as a young man to meet him several times, but his Torah informs me. I'll also tell you that uh, Dr. Norman Lamzatzal grew in his influence on my life. And one of the great comforts I have is that there is a reacquaintance with the Torah of Norman Lamb, which was extraordinary and profoundly modern Orthodox. The, the last two I'll mention is Adin Steinsaltz was tremendously helpful to me in important ways and I think represented the same worldview. And finally, Jonathan Sachs, may he rest in peace, was a dear friend. I was proud to bring him to yeshiva and uh, and to count him as a close friend. So that's great. I asked you the greatest person. You give me about 12. Is there is there one person who's alive today who you would like to meet who you haven't met yet? I think I would like to be able to spend time with a few of the gedolim who... I had access to, but never took advantage of. If I could be in an environment where I could just sit and they don't have time for it and just schmooze a little bit, that would be incredible. And I know there are, there are wonderful people that you want to sit and, and just sit at the feet of and learn ideas from secularly and religiously, but, but one doesn't stand out. I've been blessed. What about if you kind of look at history, if there's a person you could have met in history, who would it be? You know, I read Beryl Wine's books on Jewish history, so you see a lot of things. I always say I would love to be brought back to the 18th century to some of the communities in Europe and see what Yiddishkeit was really like. You know, I, I think I think I would love to meet the Rambam. Uh, that would be everything. And secularly, it would be Abraham Lincoln. Okay. What about the best speaker you ever heard? And you've heard a lot. Oh, well. You know, Norman Lamb was was amazing as a speaker. And I'd also say that Jonathan Sachs had a uniqueness about him that I don't think can ever be captured because he really managed to speak to you and your soul in words that were so easily comprehensible. What if you in a foxhole? Who would you want in the foxhole? Gee, there are, there, there are several people. I have a wonderful friend who now lives in Israel whose name is Hillel Davis. And, you know, I could trust him with my life. We're not talking about family now. Your executive vice president, Josh Joseph, someone I could spend time with uh, forever and feel protected. I could go on, but I won't. I'll stop there. What about the smartest person you ever met? So hard to say. I met Professor Alman once and was blown away by him. I have to say in a contemporary way, uh, Ari Lam is no slouch. Okay, yeah, I agree. Neither is Mayor Soloveitchik. Right. Barack Obama 
certainly thought he was the smartest person that I'd ever meet, uh, but 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 he was incredibly smart. Yes, he was. You're right. What about the greatest leader you ever met? Greatest is hard. I have to tell you, of the people that I, in my world, who I met and respected and wanted to emulate in different ways, the two that would come to mind would be Malcolm Honeline and Abe Foxman, right? Uh, who I respected a lot. Okay, now, okay, one or two more questions. Simple. Late night snack. <laughs> I'm trying not to. Um, uh, so I'm going to answer in a way that won't satisfy you. A pear or grapes? Okay, that's pretty boring. Next, yeah, I'm sorry. your favorite Shabbos song. I know, by the way, most people don't know, but Richard is a wonderful, wonderful belt filler. I miss when I used to go to the Shavuos programs and you're davening for the Ahmed. It was really beautiful. So That's very nice of you. What's your favorite Shabbos song? My father-in-law had a, a nusach to call Makadeh Shavi. That is very defining for me. And uh, so that is, I also like uh, one of the curry bones particularly. And what about your favorite tefillah? Neila. Okay, right. I know you said Davin that in YU, yeah, I remember. I still do. I, I still do. Oh, really? Really, really, really wonderful. Okay, one more question, okay? If uh, I know you've been all over, is there any place that you haven't been that you still like to go? That's a really fine question. You know, we don't have a bucket list because we pretty much have lived our bucket list. I, I think I would like to to go to the Pacific Northwest because my wife has always kind of spoken about that as something that would be splendid. So maybe it's that. Believe it or not, I've never been to Poland because at the time I uh, I was invited to lead March of the Living. There was so much happening and and I know she would like to go there. So so at, at one point I'll turn to one of my friends who knows it there and say, take us there for a week and let us see what's there. Well, listen, thank you so much, Richard, for coming on the program. As I said, it's called Unrestricted, and, you know, I really appreciate your being, your candor and your humor, your visions of the world are just really, really profound, and I consider you to be a good friend. So thank you so much. As Continue good health to you and nachas from your family for many, many years. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so very much. What a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savitsky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.